Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can check out our courses, our community, and everything we do at one commune.com. Welcome to part two of my interview with author, speaker, philosopher, and political theorist Charles Eisenstein. On today's segment, we explore one of Charles's prominent topics, our pervasive cultural habit of dehumanization. Our society is addicted to demonizing other people, cultures, religions, political parties, as a means to justify inequality injustice, and mean-spiritedness. We attribute blanket characteristics to certain people. They're evil, they're greedy, they're lazy, to provide a false and guiltless sense of justice for punishment, income inequality, war, and discrimination. Charles beautifully and lovingly imagines a restorative politics, a rehumanization of society where we actually listen to and hear each other's stories. We talk about the need to rebuild forums for the public exchange of stories between individuals as a means to heal our fractured and atomized culture. Indeed, this is at the core of why I founded Commune, a place to learn together and exchange ideas freely in order to reinstill connection and meaning into our lives. If you're depressed or paralyzed by the seeming enormity of the world's problems, I highly encourage that everyone read Charles's most recent book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. This can be a handbook for us searching for a brighter day. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to Commune. I think you know, from what I'm hearing is that not to discount the millions of people's lives that would be affected between, let's say, a Donald Trump presidency and an Elizabeth Warren presidency, that, you know, there are minimum wage and health care and, you know, essentially millions of people's lives that would be affected that I don't want to discount. But it might, you might say that we're talking about very narrow goalposts that separate these two figures, even though their countenance <laughs> couldn't be more different on some level. Um, and that the story, the new story will emerge outside those narrow parameters, sort of, you know, from MSNBC on one side and Fox on the other right. side. It would be like, you know, tight little parentheses. Right. Yeah. Outside that I mean, politics, that, that spectrum from right to left is a one-dimensional spectrum. Right, yeah. So w- the, the future that we want isn't only outside that, those two poles, but on the same axis. It's totally in a different dimension. Mm, yes. The things that need to happen are not even considered political issues. Right. It's yeah. sort of essentially spiritual issues, potentially. Or they could be, you could see them as being part of a different kind of politics. But um, 
we, we talked about this in the course, you know, the what's left out of the conversation when we define the issues as being a certain set of positions. Right. Like, you know, Obamacare, should it be repealed or not? Well, what gets left out is the entire universe of holistic and alternative treatments. I mean, they're like, we don't question the healthcare system itself. It's just kind of like who pays for it. Mm -hmm. Or if we're talking about education, more or less public funding, does that even consider the question of school as an institution of, of the industrial age to train people to be compliant, obedient factory workers. I mean, if we can go down the line, like, like sure. I think the most important issues today are not really discussed because the, the spectacle, the froth and controversy mesmerizes us. Yeah. 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 I think Marianne Williamson says we keep watering the leaves and not the roots we're not it's not that we're not interested in examining exhuming the roots but i don't think it, it is certainly not what mass media is interested in so it's uh it needs to be sort of a self-propelled journey to look deeper you know i think one of the i think very beautiful pieces of your message is around the importance of not dehumanizing others. And, you know, when I think of, like, global warming um, and I think of, like, the oil and gas executive that wakes up in the morning, even that person, I don't think, wakes up in the morning with the intention of, I'm going to warm the globe today. Right. Let's see. 1,415 parts per million. By the end of the day, 420. You know, like, nobody is... <laughs> doing that no one um but in the absence of a new story of essentially what i think of our values he goes to work and then that's the natural output in the absence of values medical innovation gets used for the pharmaceutical industry that just essentially keeps people on drugs instead of off of drugs agricultural innovation goes to sponsored by monsanto instead of actually feeding the people of the world. And I wonder if you think that that is essentially what this new story is potentially about. Is it about the reinstilling of a value-based society or value-based culture that then will change consciousness and then all of those things will change? Leaders, laws, policies, platforms? Not so much. No. No. I think that I mean, most people hold beautiful universal values. It's that the story hijacks the values mm -hmm. and diverts our creative energies toward things that pretend to serve those values, but actually do not. And, and it's true that, that values also do evolve and deepen over time. But it's, as you were saying, it's not that the, the oil company executive does not value um, peace, love, fulfillment, beauty, truth. Mm -hmm. If you could extract him from this, the reinforcing circumstances of his life, 
then you could probably have just as, I mean, you could take Donald Trump and if you got him in the right situation, you could have a beautiful conversation with him. So the question is, what are the circumstances that pervert those values or redirect those values, hijack those values? Right. Yeah, this, well, I think it goes back to separation that then always induces some sort of self-interested behavior. So I was, I was, do you know this guy, Stephen West? He has a podcast called Philosophize This. Really great. And mm -hmm. he was ca talking about this, uh, I guess you'd call him a political theorist, John Rawls. Yeah, who, um, right, theory of justice, yeah. Right, and distributive yeah. justice and things like that. And he brings up this example, I think it was quite interesting, which is like, um, let's say you've got a whole group of people over at your house, or you're even Donald Trump, and you get delivered a pizza from the pizza guy. Um, and you like open the box and you're like, oh, but wait, this pizza looks great, but it's not cut up. It's just one big pie that hasn't been cut up. And your job is to cut the pizza up. But with the caveat is you don't know what piece you're going to end up with. Mm -hmm. So how do you cut it up? Right. And <laughs> I think... I mean, <laughs> you can answer the question for yourself, but I think even Donald Trump might make this calculation of like, well, I'm just, it's a, it's a socialist cut up. It's like, I'm going to cut it up evenly because I don't know what piece I'm going to end up with, right? Right. But that's not how distributive justice functions. That essentially you end up with a big piece or you start with a big piece, or you start with a small piece. And then, you know, it's, it's up to us to figure out how to you know, create a sense of justice around that. And I, and I bring that up because I think that the most mm, visible badge of separation right now in modern culture is like income inequality, mm -hmm. you know, and polarization, atomization. Yeah. Okay. So you you brought up dehumanization. And I didn't really address that. Um, and then you're bringing up John Rawls. These are actually connected because, as you're illustrating with the pizza metaphor, what John Rawls said is that the just society is one where you set it up, and you don't know which role you're going to be. Your role is assigned randomly. Right. So what what would you what society would you choose knowing that you don't know what who you're going to be? And, and it's a very beautiful idea. Yes. And it taps into the understanding that we are all on some level of equal worth, that mm -hmm. everybody should have a, a fair lot. Right. And that, that somebody who is in some miserable sweatshop uh, – doesn't deserve that any more than you would deserve it. Like you're not better or worse than any other person. Mm. Dehumanization is a necessary, I would even call it a prerequisite for an unjust society. You have to have some way to explain to yourself why someone deserves to be a slave or why it's okay that this person is working behind the counter at Sabaro where, and I'm you know, getting on first-class flight to Tahiti. Like right. yeah, there, otherwise, the incongruity of that is disturbing. Yeah, so, so dehumanization 
is necessary to for an unjust society to operate. Mm -hmm. And the habits, the problem, I th one of the big problems, so if we accept that dehumanization is um, at the root of a lot of our social problems, and it's certainly at the root of warfare, it's, it's again universal. You have to dehumanize the enemy, demonize the enemy even, associate them with evil in order to justify bombing them and killing them. Right. And this pattern of thought, this habit, of perception called dehumanization is so pervasive that people employ it even in service to healing the effects of dehumanization. <laughs> yeah. Like, so they, they employ dehumanization uh, as a way to arouse hatred and indignation at those oil companies. If I were one of those executives, I wouldn't be doing that. I wouldn't wake up in the morning feeling good about my work. I wouldn't sacrifice the future of, of the whole planet for my own greed. Like you, you muster a story like that. And then you get people really so riled up at this diabolical enemy that they will do anything it takes to tear them down and the problem is solved. So it taps into the belief that the solution to a problem is to kill something. That is also characteristic of modern medicine and modern agriculture, and even to some extent, modern spirituality. So you can see like how all encompassing this way of thinking is, yeah. and therefore how deep the revolution is that we want to, that we want to undergo. And so if you're, I suppose, fashion yourself a conscious human being or an aware human being, um, how would then you go about addressing injustices that you see in the world that then are perpetuated by certain roles or figureheads or models, whether that be Mr. Exxon, Mr. Trump, whatever, essentially without dehumanizing? What? What is the approach? Uh, I'll preface this by saying that sometimes it might be necessary to fight Mr. Exxon or Mr. <laughs> Trump. Yes. But even if that's the case, your fight is going to be more effective if you actually understand this person mm. and why they're doing what they're doing, rather than abdicating any attempt to explain it by saying, well, they're just bad. Right. When you say they're just bad, you're you're not you're, you're you're resisting any attempt to explain to understand there's no understanding there it's a substitute for understanding so even if you are going to fight them demonizing them in your own mind is is a liability right and it also forecloses any possibility of any other response besides fighting but if you understand what is it that makes a donald trump what are the what, what, are, what are the totality of circumstances that causes the fracking executive to, to do what he's doing? Right. Then you have other options besides defeating that person. You can also maybe find some way to change the conditions. If you don't do that, 
if you don't understand the conditions that create a Donald Trump, and I'm not wanting to name him as the bogeyman here. Yeah, sure. I, I've yeah, never yeah. met the guy. Um, he might, I mean, who knows? By you know? many accounts, he's lovely in person. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't examine those circumstances, even if you do take him down, guess what? The circumstances are still there. Still there. You're going to get a new Donald Trump. Right. Or somebody, you know, some new, new occupant of a role that is systemically necessary. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. I often hear this kind of nostalgia for Barack Obama, and then which also brings me to the point of like, actually, well, nostalgia actually means our pain. But that, you know, the good old days of like a leader that was graceful, compassionate, without controversy, you know. Um, but then, of course, the conditions for our current situation were essentially that soil was cultivated over that period of time. So it's not, it's not fair for to be kind of looking at figureheads per se and say, and attributing <coughs> human condition to various, you know, to various figureheads when you're essentially you're not addressing the underlying root cause. But it's comforting. Yeah, it is comforting, yes. It's, it's, there's a, a perverse comfort in ascribing the evils of the world to some evil people. Even yes. if they are these, you know, ultra powerful Illuminati that you could never take down, there's still a comfort there because in principle, at least you know what to do. You know how to solve the problem. It's to take those fuckers down. Yes. But that vent, that 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 outlet for the energy of not knowing what to do does us a huge disservice. Because if we could stew in the in the helplessness and, and not divert onto a ready false solution, maybe we'd be able to actually find some real solutions. I think that the the warfare that we see among our political figures, it's it's an outgrowth of a more generalized polarization of society mm. or even a barometer of that. Mm, yeah. So yes, I think that there is a path toward a restorative politics. It involves rehumanization, just as restorative justice um, puts victim and perpetrator together and offers the opportunity for apology and forgiveness, offers an opportunity for each to really hear the other's story. That's what's rehumanizing. To yeah. hear your story, if I hear the, the story of why you, you know, locked me in the closet and starved me for four days when I thought I was coming here to record a course. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's how we got you up here. And then, of course, there's the reality of the torture chamber. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. But if I understand, like, you know, your whole background and I, I'm like, oh, I understand now why you did that. Then yeah. there's a possibility of real forgiveness. Yeah. Real forgiveness is difficult. Real forgiveness is not an act of indulgence. That's fake forgiveness. Real forgiveness only comes through a meeting of the souls. And one way to do that is to tell your story and to have that story really be heard. Mm. So I think politically, we can do the same to create conditions and starting with the grassroots even, um, not necessarily just the leaders, but starting at the grassroots where, where people um, can hear each other's stories, then they can't dehumanize each other anymore. Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, I think what it is in some ways, we were talking about Hannah Arendt a bit, which is mm -hmm. essentially, you know, she would claim that essentially the conditions that lead to like authoritarianism, totalitarianism, are like a real sense for belonging that is missing, that there is no identity, so then you can roll in with a red cap and, you know, mm -hmm. fancy slogan and get people all riled up, kind of ratchet up the fear, serve up an enemy, and off you go. But that really what we're lacking is sort of, I think, what you're saying, which are forums for the exchange of ideas amongst free individuals or the exchange of stories that can essentially create a level of humanization. I mean, you know, I, I guess the dominant narrative in American culture is like, oh, you've got a bunch of liberal cappuccino sipping folks on the coasts, and then we've got like a bunch of folks in kind of agrarian and manufacturing rust belt um, Mid Midwest flyover states or whatever, and that have been quote unquote left behind, and that these are the folks that then you know, s like, essentially, out of desperation, fear, whatever, voted for Trump. Like this is the narrative, mm -hmm. you know, and that are there ways to essentially create forums where people can hear each other again, because it's hard to hate up close. It's hard to hate up close. Yeah, and, and one of these Trump voting, quote, deplorables. Right. You know, if you really hear their life story, you can't deplore yeah, them. No. You can't hate them. Yeah. And the same thing, like, if one of them could hear the story of an illegal immigrant who, you know... It's the same I mean, story. story. <laughs> yeah, yes. like, I these, mean, these are heartbreaking stories. Yeah. What, what it takes for somebody to leave their family... And come with their children with no, with no guarantee that they're ever ever going to make it. I mean, and and the horrors that happen to them. You cannot hear those stories and uphold the standard right wing, you know, narrative about the Im immigrants. Yeah. You don't have to even see the the paradigm of punishment that you were referencing before just keeps coming back and back and back. You know, it's like it can become like well. Let's make them really, let's make them feel bad by telling the story as an act of violence. There has to be an attitude of generosity in, and, and of peace in the sharing of stories. I'm also just, I want to continue to mind this story component and, and how we actually create structures for this exchange of story and idea. I mean, is it that what we need to return to is more local, decentralized forms of community? I read this quote the other night, the other day, I think John Maynard Keene's um, quote, it's easier to ship recipes than cakes and biscuits, which is sort of like on the surface, kind of like neither here nor there. But then when you essentially think of like, well, you know, this pen was, the ink was probably made somewhere and then this was made in China and then it was shipped over here and now we're mm -hmm. sitting here in Topanga. That like essentially if, that we've developed great piping um, to share 
information and technology or recipes essentially and is the part of the solution being able to create structures and systems that that reward sort of distributed leadership, decentralized organization where people are actually can have that f exchange of story. Um, and what does that look like? Yeah, the answer to the question is yes. Yeah. Uh, as far as what does it look like? The decentralization of production and the distribution of production for most things makes a lot of sense and would certainly bring more connection and community and meaning into people's lives. There are some things that do not suit themselves toward local production, yeah. microchips and things like that, right. perhaps. But most things that are produced globally should be much more local, food, shelter, uh, entertainment. Mm. Uh, but I think there's another level too that even the recipes should be more local right, yeah, yeah. because they reference local conditions and properly speaking should come from local culture, which is not just a, a um, decoration on a place, but is actually rooted in and part of a place, even an outgrowth of a place. The culture is part of the land. The land is part of the culture. Yeah. So when you're talking about recipes, you know, you're talking about a cultural product that I think also should be decentralized. But at the same time, there is this whole ascent of humanity to a mass global society has also happened for a reason. So it's not to, I, I don't advocate completely dismantling the collective global intelligence, but to revalidate the other levels of organization and, and intelligence. I want to talk to round it out about a bit about regenerative agriculture because and its role in climate change because I met you through Ryland Engelhart and mm -hmm. the Kiss the Ground folks and we actually did a course with them um, around soil and the carbon sequestration properties of soil um, that honestly was I thought it was like, this is a very philanthropic thing to do with them and we'll put it on the platform mm -hmm. and it'll be like, look like we're fulfilling like our role as like good social impact conscious company. I mean, admittedly, it was a little bit of that. It was, um, and it was so popular. I mean, we had like 30 some odd thousand people sign up for that thing. <laughs> like, well, they're not going to be all farmers, obviously. But I wonder how you think about regenerative agriculture, how you understand it in the overall hmm. context of climate change and addressing it. Yeah. Climate change is another issue that my opinion is off the spectrum of opinion, <laughs> you know, which is defined on the one end by, your happy place. <laughs> by catastrophe and on yeah. the other end by skepticism mm. or denialism, as you might call it. Uh, I prefer skepticism. Um, what the... This is one of my operating principles is that in any polarized debate, the key to the debate lies in what neither side is talking about or in the assumptions that they both share unconsciously. And one of them is that in the environmental issue, the most important thing to be talking about is carbon. So kiss the ground. I, I am a 
big proponent, uh, uh, enthusiastic proponent of regenerative agriculture. But for me, it's not because of carbon sequestration. It's because I understand soil as one of the organs of a living being called Gaia or mm. called Earth. Mm. I understand that without healthy soil, Earth will survive no better than you would survive without skin. Yes, it sequesters carbon or helps modulate the levels of carbon in the atmosphere. But in my mind, more importantly, it helps to regulate the water cycle. Healthy soil absorbs rainfall that would otherwise run off and be a flood. And then as it absorbs it, replenishes aquifers and waters plants, trees especially, grasses that then transpire the water into what would otherwise be the, the dry season, creating clouds, recycling that moisture as rain, extending the dry season. So thereby first mitigating floods and then um, preventing drought. Someone was telling me um, in, uh, I think it was Jamaica or something, one of the Car Caribbean nations where in the recent hurricane, none of the villages that had intact uh, coastal wetlands suffered any loss of life. Mm. It was only the ones where there had been development and wetlands draining where there had been catastrophe because these wetlands, um, you know, absorb the incoming uh, water. And the same thing happens for land-based uh, wetlands. So basically what I'm seeing, and this is part of this, the basic mentality of warfare, which is that if you want to solve a situation, solve a problem, the first thing you do is you find the enemy or you find the one thing yeah. to attack. Yeah. So yeah. carbon dioxide yeah. fits the bill. Right. It's one thing to attack. Better yet, it's quantifiable. So we can use all of the methods and mindsets of accounting to minimize a number. Yes. And I think that as in any kind of reductionism, the important stuff gets left out. So I personally do not think that that global warming per se is the biggest threat. I think that it could easily result from ecocide, from the destruction of the organs of Gaia that just like your organs help maintain homeostasis. Right. But we could equally see catastrophic cooling or catastrophic fluctuations. Um, and I, there's a lot more to, I wrote a whole book on this, so it's hard for me to summarize it sure. now. But just as an example of the real issue being off the radar screen of conventional polarized positions. Yes. It's almost like you are a functional medicine doctor applying the theories of functional medicine outside of medicine <laughs> on yeah. some level, like to climate, to politics that always, not really, I mean, it's not that the orthodoxy and, and the conversation up here doesn't matter, but that there is a root cause that really is the thing that needs to be focused on. And, you know, it's funny that you just, like I'm having sort of like minor epiphany right now about what you're saying and like this regenerative agriculture course that we did, because my sense is that of those 30 some odd thousand people that signed up for the, that course, 
how many people are going to be a regenerative, like agricultural farmer? Five, three, ten, twenty, fifty? I don't know. But my sense is that it is a th- that there is a thirst to feel a part of nature where people have felt so divorced from it. And I think that that might have been the reason why people are, they're innately drawn to this notion of connection. Um, and don't always, but don't have always all the resources available to, to get to that. Yeah. And I think maybe we could wrap up by saying that that actually answers the question that you posed earlier. Like, what is the nature of this movement mm. that will reverse the tide of separation? Yeah. And it is exactly this, it's reunion, it's, it's reconnection, powered by what you're describing, this yearning to connect to nature again, to be part of the global reuniting of all that we have separated off, yeah. all of the beings, all of the people, the races, the cultures, the, the living things of this earth, um, to come together again. I think this is the, the tide of our time that mm. will carry us into a much more beautiful future. Yeah. Thank you, Charles. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to today's show with Charles Eisenstein. If you are interested in learning more about Charles, his books, and podcasts, please go to charleseisenstein.org. We'll have a new commune course coming up with Charles soon, so keep an eye out. Please subscribe and leave us a review. And more importantly, send me an email at jeffk at onecommune.com. I love hearing from you directly. That's it from the commune for this week. I'm Jeff Krasno and in love include me. Thank you.